This afternoon, I want to show you how you can be certain, certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ, two crucial words here. You can be certain that Jesus was and is Lord, which means he's not just a man. He, he was a man, fully man, but he's also God, fully God. There's one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Son, fully man and fully God. You can be certain that Jesus is Lord, fully God. And you can be certain that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, whose coming had been foretold for thousands of years throughout the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, prophesying that he would die on the cross, that he would rise again, and that he would bring us by his death and resurrection into relationship with God now and forever. I want to show you this afternoon how you can be certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. This is so important for us. If you're not yet trusting Christ, it's obviously important. Everything hinges on you seeing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ. So if you're not yet trusting Christ, I pray that you would see and trust and repent and receive all that he has for you. And if you are trusting Christ, this is crucial because we all know how it is. You have a trial coming in your life and you start to wonder, I wonder if this is all true. You, you sin in some heartbreaking way and you're weighed down with guilt and it's like, is there forgiveness for me? You go through time where you're just not feeling much of God's nearness anymore and it's like, is this all real? It's crucial that we are certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. So I'm praying that that's what God will do in us as we're here now this afternoon. Now, you might have doubts. Like I said, you may have come in here. We're glad you're here. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you may have doubts that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And if that's you, let me just encourage you to, to listen to what Peter says. Peter, Jesus' disciple. Listen to what he says about Jesus. Now, who was Peter? Why would you want to listen to him? Peter was a fisherman who met Jesus. Peter lived 2,000 years ago. He met Jesus, and when he met Jesus, he was deeply moved by Jesus' love, such love, his joy, his sheer presence, his radiance, and of course, his miracles. Peter was impressed by Jesus' miracles. Remember the story when Peter had been fishing all night, all night long, hadn't caught one fish. It's not a good night for Peter. Bringing his boat into the dock and Jesus yells from the shore, put your net out one more time, Peter. Peter's exhausted. He does it. And his nets are so filled with fish that the boat almost capsizes. Massive haul of fish. That would have grabbed your attention, wouldn't it? It did for Peter. 
he was completely transformed and became a follower of Jesus. For three years, he traveled with Jesus, listening to him teach, watching him heal the sick, watching him forgive sins. And then he heard Jesus teach that he would be going to Jerusalem where he would be arrested, would be crucified, killed, dead, buried, but then that he would rise again on the third day. And that's what happened. Peter saw Jesus arrested. He saw Jesus crucified, killed, dead, and buried. And Peter grieved all Friday evening, all day Saturday, but early Sunday morning, early, early Sunday morning, Mary, don't you love this story? Mary came running to the disciples. She'd gone early to the tomb, like we would go to leave flowers. She'd gone very early to the tomb, and the stone had been rolled away, and the tomb was empty. So she's running back to the disciples. The tomb's empty. He's not there. Well, Peter, Peter ran to the tomb, and he looked in, and it was empty. God had raised Jesus from the dead. Just as Jesus had said on the third day, God had raised Jesus from the dead. And later that day, Jesus came to the disciples. And over the next days, he taught them. And he especially focused on urging them to stay in Jerusalem, to wait, to wait, to pray, to wait in Jerusalem for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which the Old Testament had said the Messiah would bring, to wait for that promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who would fill them, the Holy Spirit would equip them, so they could take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus was taken up into heaven. So the disciples waited, and they prayed. And they waited, and they prayed. And then the morning of the Jewish holiday called Pentecost, Jesus from heaven poured out the Holy Spirit upon them. And they felt his presence like never before. They felt the presence of God the Father like never before. They were filled with joy. They went out into the streets proclaiming to everyone the good news of Jesus. Forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation with God, eternity in his presence, proclaiming that throughout the streets. And as you can imagine, a, a crowd started to gather. A huge crowd started to gather. Thousands of people started to gather. And Peter stood up and began to preach. Peter preached. And I want to jump ahead and show you the conclusion of Peter's sermon. Look at his conclusion. Here's verse 36. It'll be up on the screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Go ahead and, and open up. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Here is Peter's conclusion. Here's where this whole sermon is going. Acts 2, 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's where Peter's going with this sermon. His point is that we can be certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. So, what reasons does Peter give which will make us so certain? I I read through this sermon, and I found five reasons. Five reasons that we can be certain. So I want to walk through these reasons. They're going to take us right through the sermon verse by verse. Five reasons we can be certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. First reason. It's because Jesus' miracles show that he was attested by God. Now, that word attested means to be confirmed or to be endorsed or authenticated. That's what that word attested means. Look at what Peter says, very beginning of his sermon, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. We're talking about miracles here. Now, miracles can only be done by God's power. And everyone knew that Jesus had worked miracles. Everyone had seen them. Thousands had experienced them. Everyone knew Jesus had worked miracles. We're not talking about sleight of hand or hocus pocus. We're talking about miracles, supernatural works of God, powers, works that only God can do. For example, Jesus healed a paralyzed man, and he got up and walked. Miracle. Jesus commanded a storm, a raging storm, to stop. And it stopped. No man can do that. God does that. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish with lots of baskets left over. Miracles. Jesus healed a man who'd been blind from birth. Imagine, blind from birth, seeing. Jesus walked on water. No man can do that. God. Thousands and thousands of people were touched by Jesus' miracles. And the fact that God enabled Jesus to work thousands of miracles shows that God is attesting, confirming, validating, authenticating Jesus. That's Peter's point. That's the first reason we can be certain that Jesus is Lord in Christ, it's because his miracles show that he was attested by God. Now, Peter knows that that's going to raise a question in his hearers' minds. That is, well, if, if God attested to him with miracles, then why did God let him be killed? That doesn't make sense. It's a good question. And that's Peter's second point. The reason God allowed him to be killed was because God had planned, had planned, for the Messiah to die. That's God's plan. Verse 23, look at what Peter says. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
He was delivered up to death by God's plan, by God's foreknowledge. God was behind all of this. So this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, throughout the Old Testament, God had prophesied that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, was going to be killed. Isaiah 53, the Messiah is going to be crushed for our sins, the prophet Isaiah said. Psalm 22 talks about the Messiah having pierced hands and feet. Zechariah 13 says that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. So the death of the Messiah was part of God's plan. It shouldn't make us think, well, that can't be the Messiah. It should make us think, that's the Messiah. This is all part of God's plan. God had said that the Messiah would be killed to pay for the sins of everyone who will trust him. That's the second reason, and it's huge. And I just want, want to pause here. I want you to see how, how big this is. This is a massive issue because our biggest problem is sin. Sin is our biggest problem. Because sin has cut us off from God. God is just, perfectly holy, righteous. We've sinned against him. God created us so that we could have the joy of knowing him. It's in his presence that there is fullness of joy forever. God created us so we could have that. And we all in our pride refused to bend the knee before God and we turned our backs on him, rebelled against him, and walked away trying to find our joy in things that he's created instead of in the creator. And the result of that is that we are guilty before God. We are cut off from God's goodness and love and care. But God didn't leave things there. He sent the Messiah. He sent the Messiah. See, here's the problem. Every other religion tells you that there are things that you need to do in order to make up for your sin. That if you just do enough good things, you'll make up for your sin enough so you'll be able to be welcomed into God's presence. That is not what God says. All through the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, he said the Messiah is going to come and he's going to die. He's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities. He came to pay for the sins of all who will trust him. Don't try to make up for your sins by doing good things. You'll never do it. It's impossible. The only way is to recognize that God in his mercy, he is so merciful, he is so compassionate, he is so grace, graceful, he's made a way for us to be instantly, completely forgiven for all our sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins. This is what he's done. And how did he do that? By sending Jesus the Messiah, whose death paid for the sins of all who will trust him. Are you trusting him? That's the question. His arms are open wide. Trust me. Turn from your sin. Trust me. See, you can be certain about these things. That's the second reason. Third reason. It's that Jesus' resurrection shows that he is the Messiah prophesied in Psalm 16. Psalm 16 in the Old Testament scriptures was written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus came. And in Psalm 16, David says some things that could not have been true about him, that are clearly not true about him, David, which shows that David isn't just talking about himself in that psalm. He's talking about the Messiah in this psalm. 
Start reading in verse 24. Peter says, verse 24, God raised him, Jesus, the Messiah, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, Jesus, and now David quotes from Psalm 16, these next verses. So Peter says, David says concerning Jesus, and here's what Psalm 16 said. This is Jesus talking. This is the Messiah talking. I, the Messiah, saw the Lord God the Father always before me. This is Jesus talking here. It's a prophecy about Jesus talking. For he, God the Father, is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken, no matter what happens. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the place of the dead, Or, here's the key line, let your Holy One see corruption. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That line can't be about David, as we'll see in a moment. It's about Jesus, the Messiah. You have made known to me the paths of life, Father, God the Father. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter is saying that Psalm 16 isn't about David. It's about the Messiah, about Jesus. And the reason he says that is because David's body did see corruption. David's body did see corruption. Look at verse 29. Peter goes on. Now he's explaining Psalm 16. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So David died, David was buried, David's body was totally corrupted. His his tomb is right there. They they all knew where it was in Jerusalem. His bones are still there. His body did see corruption. David's body saw that corruption. So this can't be about David, which means it's pointing ahead towards the Messiah, about Jesus. Then go on. Peter goes on in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, he's talking about David, David was a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, to David, that he, God, would set one of David's descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. In Psalm 16, David spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Psalm 16 says that the Messiah would be born in the line of David, one of David's offspring, one of David's descendants, and that after dying, his flesh would not see corruption. So, who is this Messiah? Who is the Messiah who's born in the line of David and who after dying, his flesh didn't see corruption? Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus was born in the line of David, And Jesus died, and God raised him. His flesh did not see corruption. That's Peter's third point. Jesus' resurrection shows that he's the Messiah foretold in Psalm chapter 16. Fourth reason. All the apostles, the apostles all witnessed that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what Peter says in verse 32. Let's read it again. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. After Jesus had been crucified, the disciples were filled with fear and unbelief. They didn't know what was going on. I mean, Jesus had made it very clear to them, but they just, they didn't get it. Filled with doubting. Remember doubting Thomas? All the disciples were doubting Thomases, really, if you read the story. So what did Jesus do? He went to them. He came to them. He showed them his spear-scarred side. He showed them his nail-scarred hands. He said, touch me, men. Touch me. It's me. I'm here. Who's got some fish? Thank you. I'm eating. Ghosts don't eat. This is me. I'm here. This is Jesus. And they saw. It's him. Remember how Thomas responded to all of that? He fell at Jesus' feet and said, my Lord and my God. Thomas got it. And it wasn't just the apostles who saw Jesus. We know that he appeared to, in fact, there was one group of 500 people that he appeared to all at one time, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But that's Peter's fourth reason. We can be certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ because the apostles all witnessed, they saw with their own eyes, Jesus physically, bodily, alive, raised from the dead. One more reason, fifth. The fact that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit shows that he is the Messiah prophesied in Psalm 110. Here's another Old Testament prophecy from David from the Psalms. Look at verses 33 to 35. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He ascended into heaven and was exalted at the right hand of God. God the Father, he was right there at his right hand. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. They had just seen the disciples heading out into the streets full of joy, explaining, proclaiming who Jesus was. They'd been transformed. And Peter's saying, that's what you just saw, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which you saw and heard. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, David himself says, and now Peter's going to quote from Psalm 110 verse 1. And here Peter's quoting a prophecy about the Messiah. Peter says, I'm sorry, David says in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, the Messiah, the Lord God the Father said to my Lord, the Messiah, God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a very important quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Learn this verse. It's quoted throughout the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1 was written by David a thousand years before Jesus came. And David says, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Messiah would be seated at the Father's right hand, God the Father's right hand. You've got God the Father and then Jesus the Son at the right hand, right there. Why is that so important? Here's why. Jesus had told his followers, I'm going to ascend into heaven and I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. Outpouring of the Spirit. 
But the only way that Jesus could pour out the Holy Spirit was if God the Father gave authority to Jesus to pour out the Holy Spirit. If Father and the Son are sharing authority together, that's what it means to sit at the right hand. It means that you're in equal authority. God the Son, God the Father. The Father gives the Holy Spirit to Jesus and says, pour him out. And Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit. So the only way that Jesus could pour out the Holy Spirit was if he was at the right hand of the Father. And Psalm 110 said that the one who's at the right hand of the Father is the Messiah, which shows that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me try it one more time. If Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit, showing that he's at the Father's right hand, and Psalm 110 says that the one who's at the Father's right hand is the Messiah, what does that make Jesus? The Messiah. Lord and Christ. So here are Peter's five reasons why we can be certain that Jesus is the Lord and Christ. If you're not yet trusting Jesus, here are these reasons. If you are trusting Christ, but you've sinned grievously this past week and you're wondering if this is all true, understand and trust these five reasons. If you're going through a trial and wondering if God is there, if it's real, if he loves you, trust these five reasons. First, because Jesus' miracles show that he was attested by God. Second, because God had planned for the Messiah to die to pay for our sins. Third, Jesus' resurrection shows that he is the Messiah prophesied in Psalm 16. A thousand years before Jesus came, that prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. Fourth, the apostles all witnessed that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose. The tomb was empty. 500 saw him at one time. And fifth, the fact that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit shows that he's the Messiah at the right hand of the Father, as prophesied in Psalm 110. Five reasons you can be certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And that brings us to Peter's conclusion then, the end of his sermon. Start with verse 36. Let's read it again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Think of how that would have impacted his listeners. A few days earlier, they had been shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Crucify him! God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow! Now they see Jesus was and is the Messiah, Lord and Christ. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Oh! You have felt cut to the heart with conviction of sin sometimes? Oh! They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They'd sinned greatly by encouraging Jesus' crucifixion. That's a great sin, isn't it? To encourage God's Lord and Christ to be crucified is a great, great sin. But what Peter says next is astonishing. He says to them, you can be forgiven. Completely forgiven. 
They'd sinned greatly by encouraging the crucifixion. But Peter says if they will repent, turn their hearts from their sin, put their trust in Jesus, trust Jesus to forgive them through the cross, trust Jesus to change their hearts by his power, trust Jesus to fill them and satisfy them now and forever, if they will turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus, they will be completely forgiven for all their sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, instantly, completely forgiven. If they will do that. Why? Well, it's because the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, paid for the sins of all who will trust him even those who called for his crucifixion. And then Peter urges them to get baptized. Baptism doesn't save anyone, but baptism shows that you've been saved by trusting Jesus. It pictures your death to sin, your rising with Christ. It's, it's a beautiful picture. And then through this whole process, God will pour out the Holy Spirit upon them, just like God poured out the Holy Spirit upon the disciples as they were praying and waiting on the Lord. All this is in verse 38. Look at verse 38. This is the last verse of the sermon. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does this have to do with us? We didn't crucify Jesus. We weren't there shouting for his crucifixion. But we all have rebelled against God. We've all turned our backs on the infinite joy of the universe, God himself. And we've all run away from him and tried to find our joys and other things, things that he's created, that the creator's created. So we're all guilty before God's justice. We're all guilty. And we're all empty cut off from God's presence and love and joy. We are guilty and we are empty. That's what we've been. But this Easter, God has good news for you. Good news. You can know for certain that Jesus is Lord, sent from God the Father to be God in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. And he is Christ, the Messiah, whose death pays for the sins of all who trust him, and his resurrection broke the power of sin, of death. So, if you've not repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that right now. Right now. Just pray. Turn your heart from your sins. Turn to Jesus. Trust him to forgive you. Trust him to change you. Trust him to fill you with God's love, God's presence. He will do that. Do it right now. And then as soon as you can, get baptized. Send us an email. We'll tell you about how we do baptisms. We'd love to have a baptism celebration for you. And as you're taking these steps, repenting, trusting, being baptized, as you're taking these steps, God will pour out his Holy Spirit upon you, and you will know God's nearness and presence and love and joy for the first time. The joy you've been longing for, you'll know, you'll experience. Now, if you've already repented and put your trust in Jesus, let's worship by partaking of communion together. Let's remember the Lord's death as Jesus called us to do. So take the, the little cup. 
And I would encourage you just to get this all done ahead of time, okay? So the top, you can peel that back a little bit, and that'll bring you the, the, the bread. And then the next piece down, peel that back a little bit, and that'll bring you the, the cup right there. So have that ready. And I know this, this, this feels a little artificial with these little plastic cups and stuff, but praise God we can do communion with, even with little plastic cups, right? Thankful for that. We'll take it, Lord. We're thankful. Let me explain that communion is not a time for sinless people. None of us is sinless here. Communion is only a time for sinful people who are turning from their sin and trusting Jesus to forgive them. We're not sinless. We're turning to Jesus, trusting him to forgive us and to change us. We want him more than sin. So if that's in your heart, if you're trusting Jesus, then join us in partaking. If you're, if you're not there yet, we're glad you're here. Just take some time now and just ponder what we're doing while we do this. But let's start with the bread. That's where Jesus started. Take the bread. The bread pictures Jesus' body. He said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Think about that. Broken. Jesus' body was broken, and oh, was it broken. It was broken for you. For you, and you, and you, and you. This is my body, broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember and partake. Let's take the cup. Jesus took the cup. This is a picture of Jesus shed blood. And oh, was his blood shed. But his shed blood purchased for us everything we need from now to heaven and beyond. Everything. All the payment for guilt purchased. All the faith you need purchased. All the heart change repentance you need purchased. The perseverance purchased. The strength through the trial you're going through right now purchased. The battle against temptation, purchased. Love for that person, purchased. The certainty you need that he is Lord in Christ, purchased for you. His shed blood purchased everything that you need. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and partake. Let's pray. We worship you. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. 
Father, we worship you for sending your son, Jesus. What costly love. Jesus, we worship you for coming. What costly mercy. Holy Spirit, thank you for all that you've done in the work of salvation. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. We worship you. Forgiveness for sins. Eternal life. Your presence filling our hearts now and forever. Everything we will ever need to fight the fight, to walk the walk, to press on all the way to heaven's gates purchased for us and given to us through Christ. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.